0: Good morning, Browncroft. I am delighted to see all of you here this morning. And I love your heart for missions. And I love this week that we're going to be able to have together with one another. Man, I am so grateful to be back here. My wife and I had wonderful years here at BCC. And we had a flood of memories coming in this building this morning. I remember when there was nothing here except a plot of dirt. And uh, we went through that incredible journey together, trying to figure out how to get the cupola up on the roof and all that stuff. And then I remember all the leaks we had on the roof. And I remember all the sound problems we had. And I tell you, what you've got here is amazing now. Really, really cool. It is great to be back with you. And Pastor Rob, thanks for inviting me. And thank you for your great leadership here. I know there have been a lot of challenges. There always are in pastoral ministry. But God has given Rob many, many years here, and we're so grateful for that. Hey, I remember when our kids were running around the hallways of this place. In fact, I remember when our kids seemed like ter- little terrors here at BCC. They got in trouble for running down the halls, and there was a protest once upon a time because the girls' brigade or girls, pioneer girls, didn't get enough of gym time. And I remember the protests. And anyway, <laughs> lots of incredible memories just kind of come flooding back to me. Hey, I remember this time when there's a guy sitting right down here in the front. Um, and I got to preach. I don't know what, I guess I offended him or something, but he pulled out a few Bible, and he tore out a page, and he crumpled it up. I'm preaching, and there's these things flying at me from the front row. I remember, how about the time there was the guy with the eggs and tomatoes out in the parking lot? Remember that? And uh, he was lobbing them at people as they were coming in the building. That was great, <laughs> except that Channel 9 was here. I think it was Channel 9, and they're out in the lobby, And Jay, oh, God bless Jay. Jay just very calmly invited them to go down the hallway to check out children's ministries (laughs) while the cop cars were all showing up. Oh, my goodness, those were the days. Anyway, we have so many fond memories. We loved it. And I got to tell you, I love the impact that so many of you had on our kids. When we were here, we had four little kids. And so many of you, in fact, I just started thinking about all the names of people that touched the lives of our kids whether it was the Elliots or the Rotors, I mean, the list just goes on. In fact, I don't even want to start because I'm afraid I'll leave names out. But such an incredible impact on our kids growing up. I'm happy to say that those little kids all kind of growed up over time, and this is the tribe we got now, except that there's three more added into this mix. Becky and I have 14 grandchildren now, and we live in Colorado Springs, and all the kids are within an hour's drive of us, and all of them... By God's grace, they have fond memories of Browncroft, and I'm happy to say that they're all in ministry in one way or another, and uh, that is just an incredible joy for us. My son is here today, J.J. J.J. and I are the uh, co-founders of Compel Global. My dear bride, Becky, is here today as well. Becky, hey, stand up and just kind of wave everybody. uh, You know... Becky is uh, an author. Uh, She's written, I don't know how many books now. Some of you have seen her books. Uh, But the Lord has has used her over the years in some remarkable ways. And um, I'm incredibly blessed to have a wife that loves Jesus and models for me a deep and intense walk with God. And then uh, this crop of kids that God has given us are the greatest, really the greatest joys in our lives. So you know, um, Becky and I have been in pastoral ministry for 30 some odd years. It was great, it was wonderful. Last church I was at, there was a young guy, I mentored him, poured my life into him for four years every Tuesday morning. And in the end, I felt like he ought to be the lead pastor, and so we decided that if the church would accept him, he'd become lead, and I'd do something. Anyway, in the midst of all that, God called us into missions. And Becky and I spent the last five years literally traveling all over the world. And um, it was wild. It wasn't sustainable. I mean, we were traveling like 80% of the time. It was nutty. Every month we were in some other country of the world or countries, and it was exhausting. But on the same token, it was amazing to see what God is doing in the world. There are so many places where you wonder, is God even at work here? Is God doing anything? And then you're surprised. I remember we were in one country, and we just landed. And every country Becky and I go to, we're always looking out. Where is the kingdom of heaven breaking in? Where is God showing up? How is he revealing himself? And we're always full of surprises. So we got into this one country and I thought, oh man, this is one of the darkest places on earth. I, I just, I can't imagine that God is showing up here. And we got into the airport. Everybody was wearing burkas and you could see the slits in there, you know, for their eyes. But, and, and so we're in this airport and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, we're here. You've called us to come to this country. What does this look like? Where are you showing up? We decided to stop in the airport coffee, uh, coffee shop while we're waiting for our luggage. And while we're doing that, we're drinking our coffee, and I couldn't believe it. I'm listening to Lauren Daigle and Chris Tomlin piped in into the coffee shop and the music system, and I just couldn't believe it. I thought, wow, God, how humorous of you. This is so incredible. You are showing up in the most unlikely of places, and God really is. It's been amazing to Becky and I to see how God's kingdom is breaking in all over the planet, and and God is doing things that Honestly, have just kind of expanded our minds and kind of blown our minds. I, mean, I remember one of the most wild experiences I had a couple years ago. There was this guy I heard about. I'm not going to tell you what country he's in because he's, let's just put it this way, he has a lot of fatwas against him and threats on his life. But I heard how God had got a hold of his life. So me and a couple of my buddies, we decided to go check it out. So we flew on the opposite side of the world and word leaked that we were supposed to meet with this guy. So we had to extricate him out of his country into a neighboring country. I walk in the lobby of this hotel wondering what on earth am I going to get into and here's this guy dressed in a robe there with a long beard and he greets me warmly and the very first thought I had is wow I just you can almost sense the grace of Christ in this guy's life it was it just kind of poured out of him it was amazing we sat down ordered some chicken satay and I said tell me your story and he said, well, I was a bomb maker for Al-Qaeda, and he was. In fact, he had scars all over his face from when a bomb blew up. He was trying to blow up a church, and he kind of took some of the heat, all right? And anyway, he told me, he said, I got implicated in the bombings in Bali, and I didn't do it. And one day, I was driving along, and I, and I heard this guy on the radio, and he was saying that Jesus, Prophet Jesus, hears and answers prayers. And he said, I didn't know what to make about that. And, you know, the Quran talks about Jesus 20 times. A lot more than it talks about Muhammad, by the way. But in any way, it doesn't say that he hears and answers prayers. And so this guy is intrigued by it, so he calls up the DJ and he says, hey, you said on the radio that Jesus hears and answers prayer. I've been implicated in this bombing and I didn't do it. And I don't want to go to Gitmo. Will you pray for me? And the DJ, there was a long pause, and the DJ finally said, well, I'm happy to pray for you, but I would prefer that you pray yourself first. So that night, he prayed. And he said, Lord Jesus, if you do hear and answer prayer, will you reveal yourself to me? And he had this incredible experience, and anybody that's traveled around the Muslim world knows that this is pretty much commonplace now, but he had a a vision. And I said, well, tell me about it. What was that like? And he said, "It was just like you standing in front of me now, although he was a lot brighter than you. And he went on to explain how Jesus showed up to him and told him, from now on, you are to be my follower. Well, he didn't know any missionaries. He didn't know any Christians. He didn't know anything. All he knew was Jesus showed up to him and said, you're to be my follower. So the next week, get this, he's the imam. He goes into the mosque and he starts telling people in the mosque, Jesus showed up to me. And the next thing you know, rather than leaving the mosque, he stays there. He turns it into a Jesus mosque. And there are literally thousands of people that have come to faith in Christ. 350 every month last year from January to March giving their lives to Jesus Christ. Now, I sat down with this guy. I had 16 hard questions, and I thought, theologically, I'm going to get them. This, this is too crazy. He nailed every one of my questions. It was amazing. And I wanted to scratch my head saying, wow, God, you are showing up in remarkable ways. Hey, how about this? What is it like to hang out with a guy for a whole week long, watching him in action? He's got four, doc- or four degrees from a theological seminary. This guy is incredible. We're training pastors in India and there's one guy comes forward and he says, hey, I just need to have a gift of miracles. It's the only way I'm going to reach these Hindus for Jesus. Now, we're in a real tough spot. We're in a state of India where those Australian missionaries had, been, had lost their lives a few years ago. And it was a high-security environment. And this guy comes forward and he says, we just pray I get the gift of miracles. And here's my friend who I've only met a couple, you know, just a short time earlier. And he's a, he's a Brahmin in India, so he's at the top of the caste system or near the top. And this guy comes says, will you pray for me? And he says, no, I'm not going to pray for you that you get the gift of miracles. I'm going to pray that you're so in love for Jesus that it just pours out of you. And you can't help yourself but tell people about Jesus. Well, the guy walks away a little bit disappointed. And later on, I sat down to dinner with my buddy and I said, hey, man, you told this guy, you know, i are not going to pray for miracles, but tell me your story. And then I find out that I just spent a week with a guy that had been raised from the dead. And to be around this guy, you're just like, holy smokes. God, what have you done? And he was raised to life again. After he had died and he'd been dead for several hours, what an untouchable, a dully God called her and woke her up early in the morning and said, there's somebody I want you to pray for. It took her hours to walk all the way across the city to get to the home of a place she didn't know. And the Spirit of God said, this is it. She opens, she knocks on the door. They come out and say, go away. She says, no, God has called me to pray for somebody here. And there's a big argument, and finally, in the midst of all of these people wailing and mourning, the loss of this this young man. She came in and prayed over him for 45 minutes. She poured her tears out on him until he woke up again and came back to life. Now, there was a time in my life where I was so skeptical, I just said, God, you don't do that kind of stuff. I mean, that's the stuff out of the book of Acts. You don't do that stuff today. But I'm telling you guys, I have seen and witnessed and been with people like this. And it's remarkable to see the way that God is working in the world today. But guess what? You and I get an opportunity to join Him in what He's doing in the world. You know, I've always said that the most incredible thing about you is that you're in Christ and Christ is in you. And that changes absolutely everything. It was interesting to me not knowing that the theme of the conference or the theme verse that was up here just a moment ago is Ephesians 2.10. just happens to me my life verse. We are God's workmanship. The word workmanship there is literally the Greek word poem. You are God's one-of-a-kind, beautiful, poetic expression. You are His artwork, and you are created in Christ Jesus. That's incredible in itself. To do good works, which He ordained beforehand that you should do. You have a call of God on your life. Your calling is to join Him in His mission. Your goal in life is to become like Christ. To believe what he believed, to behave the way he behaved, and to join him in his mission. That's your calling. And there's all these specific things that God has laid out in your life. He has works prepared in advance for you to do. And what does it look like for you to lean into that? To make life this grand adventure of joining Jesus in his mission. Well, This morning I'm going to share with you from Exodus chapter 4. I know this isn't a usual missions passage. I mean, maybe you're expecting me to come up here and share Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. Great verse, Mark 16, 15, John uh, 20, 21. As the Father sent me, so send I you. Or Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my martyrian, my witnesses. First in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then to the other parts of the world. Those are great verses, but guess what? I'm going to take you to the book of Exodus. So turn with me, if you've got a Bible or a smartphone, to Exodus chapter 4. As you're doing that, a little bit of context. Moses is out in the wilderness. He's been taking care of sheep for 40 years, up and down the mountainside, taking care of sheep. There was a time when he was the prince of Egypt. Everything fell apart. He moved too quickly on what he thought was his calling, and things kind of got messed up, and now he's in the wilderness for 40 years, taking care of sheep. He's on the side of a mountain, he suddenly sees a bush. The bush is on fire, it's not getting getting charred. He's wondering what's going on here. He stands in front of the bush because he's amazed by it, and suddenly there's a voice. And the voice is a call to Moses, and it's a call to go down to Egypt, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So Moses, he's he's not too thrilled at first with this calling on his life, and he starts throwing up objections. Chapter 3, verse 11, Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I? I'm a nobody. I'm a shepherd, taker, carer of sheep. All right? And God says, I will be with you. He says over in chapter 4, verse 10, oh, pardon your servant, Lord, but I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. God, you got the wrong guy. Look at verse 13. Moses says, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. I mean, he just keeps throwing up excuse after excuse why he can't do what God has called him to do. Look at at the beginning, chapter 4. Moses answers, well, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? Man, I I know that verse well. There's been plenty of times in my life where I felt like the Holy Spirit said, I want you to say something or share share me with somebody, and my response is, well, Lord, what if they don't believe me? Am I going to have egg on my face? Am I going to be embarrassed? It's going to get awkward. What if they don't believe me? And then the Lord said to him, I want us to look at the question and the two commands that God gives. Ready? So the question is, what is that in your hand? So this voice out of the burning bush says, what is that in your hand? Well, Moses, he's got a shepherd's staff in his hand. That's all he's got. That shepherd's staff is a hunk of wood, a long stick, and it's maybe got a little curve at the top, so it's, it's good for corralling sheep, you know. You just kind of put it down around their neck and pull them back in. It's probably useful for fighting off predators, you know, a wolf or a lion or some wild animal comes and... You know, you can whack him with the stick. It's probably good for steadying him as he walks along the mountain paths. You know, he can hold it and kind of keep himself from sliding off the side of the mountain. But that stick is something else. You see, it's just an ordinary hunk of wood. But that stick kind of represented Moses' life. For 40 years, he'd been carrying this stick around him. For 40 years, he'd been taking care of sheep in the wilderness. For 40 years, he'd been walking up and down these trails. He knew them like the back of his hand. And that shepherd's staff kind of represented his life. There was a time when he might have held something more important in his hand, like a scepter of a pharaoh as the prince of Egypt. But not nah, that was long ago and far away. Now he's just, he's given up all of his ambitions. He's just a shepherd now. He's 80 years old. He's taking care of sheep. What could God want to do with him now? The Lord said, what is that in your hand? And then there's a command. And the command is, throw it on the ground. Huh? What? I wonder what Moses is thinking here. I mean, he's, what, what, do you, what, do you want, what do you want me to throw this stick on the ground? And, and the Lord didn't say, you know, I want you to just gently take that shepherd's staff and just kind of, you know, ease it down. He said... Throw it down on the ground. Okay. So Moses threw it on the ground. Yeah, Has God ever asked you to do something that just kind of didn't make a whole lot of sense to you? I mean, have you ever done something where it just felt like the Lord was saying, Look, I, I, want, you to, I want you to obey I me. Mean, I want you to do what I've asked you to do. And, and you throw it down. But it doesn't turn out the way you expected it to. So what happens here is he throws down this shepherd's staff and it turns into a snake. Now, that's not a real good thing, I don't think. Look, I grew up in Africa. I was used to vipers and cobras and mambas. And Man, I remember like it was yesterday when I looked under a bush and me and a cobra are eye to eye and he's all coiled up like this and we're just, hello, that's not a happy feeling. And I came flying backward out of there, screaming and scared to death. And that's kind of the way Moses reacts here. He throws his staff down. He does what God tells him to do, and it turns into a snake, and he runs away from it. And then the Lord says to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Can you just imagine that? That's a scary-looking thought. I remember my younger brother, one time came home, and he's got a cobra, and he's flinging it around his head like it's a slingshot or something. Nuts, crazy. You don't pick up a snake by the tail. And if you're even going to mess with a snake, first thing you want is a forked hook, and you want to reach down and pin down his neck, and then you reach underneath. I've done this. It's not good. But you don't pick it up by the tail. Can you imagine the trust that had to be involved in this thing? I mean, poor Moses. All he's known, he's got this little wooden humble staff in his arm. The Lord says, what's in your hand? I got this stick, Lord. It's not worth much. Throw it down. He throws it down. He obeys God. It turns into a deadly snake. He's scared to death. What have I done? Was it a smart idea to throw that thing down? Did God really ask me to do this? It's like when Becky and I went to Sudan. You know, years ago I was a pastor of the International Church of Khartoum, and we got on the plane to fly to Africa on a packed 747. We we stop in Athens for refueling, and 95% of the passengers get off, and there's like six people left on the plane. I look at Becky, she looks at me, and I, what have we done? Nobody wants to go where we're going. This doesn't this doesn't look good back. And Then we got to the mission field, and no sooner we got there and we got involved in some kind of a Controversy with our fellow missionaries. I still don't know what it was about. Something about, anyway, whatever it was about, it wasn't good. We got called into the administrator's office. We're in 48 hours. I mean, how much trouble could we be in already? Man, it felt like it turned into a snake. God, what have we done? Did we really hear you? Did you really tell us to go? We acted in obedience, it turns into a snake. Maybe there's some of you like that, feeling like that today. You did what God asked you to do. You you stepped out. He told you to throw it down. You threw it down, and it turns into a snake. And now you're saying, what have we done? And some of you are tempted to pack it in and just run away. I don't want to do ministry. I don't want to be involved. Oh, I tried that once. Let me tell you what happened. We run away from the calling that God has put on our lives because we're disillusioned or we're afraid. We run into something. Man, it's turned into a snake. i got to get out of here. Well, the Lord tells him to reach it out and take, pick it up. So Moses reached out, and he took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. Wow. Now note, That's no ordinary staff. Let me tell you, that's no ordinary staff. It's not like there's just kind of like this magic wand, you know. It's not like that. But something happened. When he, when he threw down this very ordinary thing, this hunk of wood, and then it turned into something crazy, and then he fixed it back up, and it turns back into an ordinary staff, but it's not an ordinary staff. Because now that ordinary staff has been surrendered to God, and now it's extraordinary. Remember what happened at the Red Sea when... Moses held up his staff and the Red Sea parted. Remember when the people were thirsty and Moses took that staff and maybe he shouldn't have done it, but he whacked this granite boulder and all of a sudden it split open and water came running out. And What about that time when the Israelites were in a battle with the Amalekites and Joshua was out there in the battle? and and Aaron and her with with Moses and Moses held up the staff and as he held up the staff the people the Israelites won and when he pulled the staff down the Amalekites won and Aaron and her one took one arm one took the other arm and they held that staff high. That was no ordinary staff. So I got 3 questions for you. What is in your hand? You know, you got passions, you got skills, you got experiences, you got resources, you got relationships. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, but you have something in your hand. You might think it's just an ordinary shepherd's staff. You might think you don't have anything to offer God. Eh, that's all I got. I'm not a 10 talent guy. I'm not even a five talent guy. I might be a two talent guy, but that's all I got. You got something in your hand. What's in your hand? You know, so a year ago, you know, after all those years of being a pastor and then as a president of a mission, I, I honestly, I had so many things in my background that I loved. And I loved being a pastor. I really did. But you know what I found out? I found out that when I was a pastor, what I love more than anything else is seeing God's people step up and embrace their callings. Man, i never forget the time we did a missions trip here at Browncroft. And a bunch of us decided to do this crazy thing. We, we decided to go to Ethiopia and Kenya. We wanted to get as far away from civilization as as we could. And we heard that there was this tribe. The People were all naked, but they carried around AK-47s or Kalashnikovs. And we said, well, that sounds interesting. Let's go check those guys out. So we flew over to uh, Ethiopia and we... We had a helicopter company that was going to fly us to the absolute most remote part of Africa, and we just wanted to see, is God there? And it sounds like a dumb idea. I mean, who does that, right? Usually when you do a missions trip, you go build a building, or you go do this or that. We were on an exploratory trip. We wanted to see where's God showing up. And we wanted to look at the big five, poverty, ignorance, disease, corruption, and spiritual darkness, and see how is God's kingdom breaking in in those areas? So it was a fact-finding trip for us. It was crazy. We had a wild time. At nights, we'd hang around at a campfire and say, hey, guys, what do you think? What did you see today that moved you? How is God showing up here? And what ideas do you have that could make a difference? You know, if you were a missionary here. It was we had some crazy wild experiences. And by the way, we never got to those people because we got grounded by the government of Ethiopia. And then we decided, well, let's go and rent some four-wheel drives. And we drove those four-wheel drives as far as we could possibly go into the wilderness. And finally, we we reached pretty much the end of the road. We couldn't go any further, it wasn't safe. And we thought, well, we got as far as we could get. We didn't find the naked guys with collection the cops, but maybe we're not supposed to after all. So we turned the Jeep around, and we saw a mud hut nearby there. And there was smoke pouring out of the roof. And we thought, oh my goodness, that thing's on fire. We better run over there and rescue whoever's in there. So we piled out of our, we had two four-wheel drives. We piled out, and we went running towards this mud hut. And we looked inside the mud hut, and all we saw were white eyeballs. And there was a fire in the middle, but then there were these white eyeballs. And we, oh my goodness, there's like 40 people crammed in this smoky hut with this fire going on in the middle of it. And we came in and we had a guy that could speak their language and he translated, he said, this is a church. We couldn't believe it. God's showing up in the most unlikely of places. And we had this incredible, we wound up, they sang songs to us, we wound up singing songs to them. It was an amazing experience, and we came out of there saying, you know what, what if we just figured out as a church what we could maybe do to kind of join Jesus and his mission around the world? And so we got back from that trip, and some of the guys started saying, let's adopt a people group. So we wrote to a whole bunch of mission agencies, and we said, is there a people group you guys want to reach? We want to get in on the ground floor. And a bunch of them wrote back and said, we want to reach the Wolof. We said, great, we're all in. And that was an amazing experience. And what blesses my heart so much is it continues, the journey continues. And you guys have no idea the impact Browncroft has had on that people group over the years. I get the opportunity to go back to Senegal every few years, and it's amazing the things I hear. What a blessing. But I tell you guys, for me, it was like, okay, Lord, what have I got to throw down? I've traveled around the world. I've seen a lot of guys that are doing amazing stuff around the world. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, Lord, that's something you put, you put in me. I've got stuff in my head where I've seen people doing these things, and, I, and I've seen their work. And I know you've given me a passion for helping people figure out their callings in life and igniting a passion for missions. And I, and I thought, okay, that's something I could do. And I started putting together this list of what was in my hand. In fact, I had 12 things that I had in there. And I thought, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? And Lord said, throw it down. And I said, yeah, but you don't understand. Something. I'm cool offering this stuff to you, but there's some stuff in here that I kind of like that I'm not sure I want to throw down. You know what I really like? I don't know. How many of you have done Strengths Finders? Anybody done Strengths Finders in this room? There's a few of you. Strengths Finders is like one of these assessments where they help you figure out your strengths. So I took it and I figured out my five strengths. And one of them is significance. I love significance, and I'm thinking, well, Lord, you know what? I really would like to be. well, uh, oh, I don't know. Make me a CEO of something. The Lord said, I want you to throw that down. I want you to do a startup. And I think that's nuts. Well, I've never. Started. I'm too old to be doing a startup. And you know what? The other thing I really love. I love my financial security. Man, I love how faithful Browncroft was when I was a pastor here. You guys took care of me, took care of your pastor, and I so appreciated that. And every church I pastored, you know, they really took care of me, and I I valued my financial security, and I just thought, and the Lord says, throw it down. Whoa. You mean I don't even know where where the money's going to come from? Lord, I'm too close to retirement. That's nuts. The Lord said, throw it down. You know, so guys, let me ask you, what's in your hand? What do you got in your hand? And what does it look like for you to throw it down? What does it look like for you to throw it down? Let me give you a couple examples. So my buddy Gary shows up in my office. He's 64 years old. He just got laid off, and um, he really didn't know what to do with the rest of his life. And he said, I'm too young to retire. I can't retire. I don't have the financial resource to retire. What do I do? He's sitting there on the couch, and I said, well, what do you used to do? He says, well, I was the... uh, I, was, I did HR for Little Caesars Pizza. And I said, really, what did that look like? And he said, well, I hire and fire people. Really? How many people have you hired and fired? 2,000. Whoa, that's a lot of firings, dude. You're really good at firing people. <laughs> he said, yeah, but I'm also good at hiring them. I said, great. You know what a good resume looks like? And he said, absolutely. I can figure out a good, qualified guy in three seconds. So why don't you train guys in our church to write a good resume, to do a good interview, and why don't you help those guys find jobs? This is the middle of the Great Recession. And he walked out of my office, and you know what he did? He threw it down. He took that experience, his background, his personality, he threw it down. And during the Great Recession, I can't tell you how many hundreds of guys had a breath of new life brought into them as they found jobs that were rewarding and fulfilling and careers with a purpose was born. You know, I've seen that story so many times over. I think of a, I think of a lady, her name's Annabelle. She is a Ugandan. And um, Annabelle, um, she had a real hard thing in her shepherd's staff. There was a lot of pain in her shepherd's staff. And there didn't seem to be anything good in that shepherd's staff. I mean, she was never successful at anything. Her family wasn't successful. She was dirt poor, lived in a mud hut, no seeming future. And worst case scenario, her, her dad wound up beating her mom and she fled for her life. And then this relative moved into the mud hut and abused her and took advantage of her sexually. And she wound up on the streets of Kampala, not even knowing how she was going to survive. That's what was in her shepherd's staff. And you know what? The Lord told her to throw it down. Today, Annabella is in the top 40 in Uganda, the, the list of the top 40 leaders of Uganda. She has started an incredible ministry of coming alongside of girls that have been raped and abused who have become pregnant. She's, we're building out a home with her right now, a 20-acre facility with individual homes, seven bedrooms in each home, four baths, to house these girls and bring them back to wholeness. Annabella threw down her staff. What's in your staff? There's another buddy of mine. His name's Gary, too. So Gary, he's, he's a retired... He's, he was an engineer out in California, and he liked putzing around in his garage. And so he held, had the door of the garage up one day, and he's out there just doing some woodwork and stuff. And his kid comes riding by on a skateboard and says, hey, what you doing, old man? And he says, well, let me, come on up here. And I'll show you what I'm doing. And he shows how he's making these toys out of, you know, wood and stuff. And the guy says, the kid says, whoa, man, that's really cool. Can I, can I come out and help you out? And he says, oh, sure, man, come along. The next thing you know, Ed has started an incredible ministry of mentoring young kids. And Ed is so smart that he figured out how to do robotics. And now he's teaching these third and fourth graders robotics. And he's doing it in the name of Jesus. He's sharing the good news about Christ with these kids. What did Ed do? He just threw it down. So what do you got? And what does it look like for you to throw it down? What if you made a list of everything, like I did? Here's what I got, Lord. Here's my 10 things or my 5 things or my 15 things. This is what I got. Here's my experience, my personality, my resources, my relationships. Everything I got Throw right here. And what does it look like to throw it down? And what's holding you back from throwing it down? Maybe you're afraid it might turn into a snake. Might, but you know what? God works those things miraculously. Maybe you're afraid to throw it down because you're thinking, I can't give up my security. I just like my comfortable life. I like where I am. I'm happy. I'm content. What does it look like to surrender all of it to the Lord and His purposes? What does it look like to take a risk for the kingdom of heaven? What if the ultimate value is not your safety, your security, your comfort, and just making it through? What would it look like for your life to be a grand adventure of throwing it down for the sake of the gospel? I remember my buddy Harry years ago, Harry, why is it I keep talking about old guys? Maybe it's because I'm one of them now. But anyway, Harry was 65. And uh, one day his wife called me up and said, would you go visit my husband in the hospital? And I said, oh, no, what's wrong? And she said, well, he's, he's not been feeling well for a long time. I didn't realize that. But I went to the hospital, and Harry, just coming out of surgery, um, he wasn't really there yet. So I went back a couple days later and found out what was really going on. Harry had stage four pancreatic cancer. The doctor told him, once you're out of here, Harry, you just need to go home and get your house in order. Um, you know, you, you, your time here is a matter of months. And uh, I went back a couple times back to the hospital. And one time I went back to the hospital. I said, Harry, how are you doing? And he says, well, I'm actually feeling a little bit better right now. I only got 10% of my pancreas left. I don't know, You know, the doctors tell me I'm not going to survive. But, but I said, okay, Harry, are you going to go home? What are you going to do? And he said, well, he said, actually, I'm going to go to India. What? Yeah, my wife and I, we've just been really concerned about the untouchables in India and how they don't have a future and how that they're at the bottom of the caste system. And we just want to go over there and devote the rest of our days to helping them improve their status, teaching them English, doing whatever we can to help them out. And I said, Harry, are you, you're certifiable. You are nuts. You should go home to your house and do what the doctor said. And he said, Well, I'm gonna die one way or the other. I might as well die over there. I said, Here you got family that love you. Yeah, I know, and I'm gonna love them too. And you know what? Thank God for Zoom. And I I mean, I could not talk this guy out of it. I thought he was absolutely insane. So he gets out of the hospital, he's feeling pretty good, and he he and his wife sold their house. They lived in the neighborhood we did. They sold their house and then they moved to India. And then next thing you know, he called Becky, not me, he called Becky to come and do a conference over there, and Becky went over there and had this incredible ministry with these girls that have come out of trafficking, hundreds of them, and just poured, Becky poured her life into these women, and it was amazing to see the joy and the vibrancy and how these girls that had been so abused were now learning to speak English and learning micro or skills and entrepreneurship, and she was blown away. Beck came back to me and said, honey, you got to get over there. So the next year, Harry and Patty invited me to come over there. And I went over there with Becky this time, and he touted me all over the country and looking at this and speaking here and doing that, and it was, I was blown away with the impact of Harry. You know what? God prolonged his days. For seven years, Harry touched India in incredible ways. The legacy of that man's life was huge. And it wasn't just huge on them. It was huge on me. He's my hero. Harry he threw it down. Now, I know there's some of you today that say, this is just nuts. What's this guy talking about? Hey, you know what? I'm too old. Well, so was Moses. So was Harry. So was Gary. So was Ed. I mean, come on. And some of you say, I don't have anything. I, yeah, you got a wooden stick in your hands, right? I mean, you got something. Everybody has something. You got spiritual gifts. You got, I mean, you got something in your shepherd's staff. What is in your staff? What might it look like to throw it down, and what is holding you back? You know what? You want your life to be a grand adventure. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you just want to be comfortable and live a secure, comfortable life and be able to look back and say, well, that was a drag, but it was okay. I mean, do you want to live an adventure? Throw it down. Throw it down. You've got a calling on your life that's amazing. You were created in Christ Jesus God's poetic handiwork for a work that He's called you to do and it ain't done yet as long as you're on this side of the box. What does it look like for you to take a tally of what you've got in your hand, throw it down for the glory of Christ? You know, I could end it on that point. It'd probably be a good one to end on but I want to say this. You and I follow a leader. You know what that leader did? He threw it down. The glory of heaven... Being with the Father, unbelievable glory beyond our wildest dream. Couldn't even imagine it. And he threw it down. He came to this two-bit planet, stuck out in the middle of the Milky Way somewhere. And he didn't just come here to be the big honcho. He came here to live a humble life. He born in a Bethlehem two-bit town in the middle of nowhere. He taught us how to live. He taught us how to die. But I'm telling you, he's throwing it down, turned into a snake, didn't it? I mean, it wasn't exactly a pleasant ride. He was beaten. He was abused. He was rejected. Ultimately, he was crucified. And it looked like the snake got him, but it didn't. And he rose again on the third day. And the rest, my friends, is history. That's the leader we follow. What did he have in his hand? He threw it down and he picked it up again. What do you have in your hand? Throw it down and pick it up again. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we could just go on and on with this amazing story of Moses and the journey he was on. But, Lord, we know that we're like Moses. We throw up all of our excuses, too, why we can't do things, why we can't participate in the Great Commission, why we can't give more and go more and pray more. Why we can't be sharing our faith more. We have all these excuses. But Lord, they're excuses. And we want our lives to count. And we want to fulfill the mission that you have placed upon each one of our lives. Whatever that might look like, Lord, I pray that you would help us to take stock of what we have in our hand, be willing to throw it down, and then be willing to pick it up, even if it looks like a snake, for the glory of our King, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name.